share a little why behind this whole night. I mean, going forward, I really, really want to create a culture in the youth ministry of just like being able to ask questions, being able to have nights like this where we're um, facilitating conversation. Um, it may not be necessarily a Q&R night. It might be like we're gonna we're gonna only focus on this. And I brought like three other people that would be really, really good at answering this. Um, things like that where we're creating a culture in which like Jesus is hopefully at the center at all of it but we're just engaging with what culture is asking we're engaging with what people in the church are asking we're creating a culture with in which the church is okay with asking questions when I went it's because I thought well my experience was good enough for me and I started talking to like my non-christian friends and they all had an experience on why they believe what they believe and I was like well I can't just unvalidate your like experience, but like I had a really spiritual experience with Jesus. So like, how does that make sense? And then I talked to one of my, my roommate and I was like, Hey, I'm having kind of these doubts. Like, what do you think? He's like, dude, doubts are bad. You can't have doubts. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, e you either believe in Jesus or you don't, you can't have doubts. I'm like, I don't know if it's really black and white. I don't really think it should be black and white. And I think just my conversation think it's black and white and I think it's okay to have questions and we think it's totally just a part of all of our spiritual journeys to be asking those questions and being able to lean into God I think when we don't turn to God with our questions that's where it can turn into maybe some it could potentially not lean us towards Jesus but it's okay to have questions and laying them laying them at his feet so I'm going to pray I'm going to give opportunity for them to kind of introduce themselves a little bit and then yeah but father we just thank you for this time we thank you for your spirit and how he convicts us how he guides us how he leads us how he comforts us that even in the midst of our questions we can still we can still just come to you and you will give us answers um, and even if they're not full and we'll never understand until we're on the other side of eternity with you um, you still provide us a way in which we can seek you. Uh, tonight, I just pray that um, as we try to provide responses to these questions, that we would glorify your name. That we would um, just be representatives of you and servants of you. Um, and we just thank you for everything that you do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to grab something really quick, but then. Would you guys like a Bible really quick? Sure. Okay, cool. I got one. Also, yeah, if you guys want a Bible because you thought of a question and want to know maybe like where in Scripture would be important, feel free to grab a Bible um, and look it up or whatever if you have a clarifying question about a Scripture. So anyways, but I'm going to turn to Pastor Lane Greenleaf Perez, and he's going to introduce himself a little bit. Hi, I'm Pastor Lane Greenleaf Perez. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh you guys go to this church, so I assume that you've seen me before. Um, but uh, I'm excited about tonight. I love dialogue. I love questions. Um, I love being able to lean into difficult questions. I think I learned pretty quickly that if we as a church, if we lean away from difficult topics, difficult questions, we become very quickly irrelevant to the people around us. Um, it's, it's not a service to those that we're trying to minister to to dodge the questions that they have, and the, even if they're difficult, even if we don't have, like, an answer. And I actually think that's that's been really healthy for the church recently is to get 
um, questions pointed at us that we don't Im have an immediate answer to because it forces us to actually uh, reflect on those things and accept that maybe there's some mystery to even the things that we believe and that we subscribe to. So uh, I am not a, uh, a theologian. I am not a philosopher. Uh, I am a pastor who happens to be enthusiastic about theology. I like to learn about theology. I like to read a lot of theology. I like philosophy. I like literature. But I'm not an expert in any of these fields. And so I want to I caveat this conversation with that. Um, I have a lot of contact points with these conversations, but I'm not an expert. And so that's why I like that James has called this a question and response. Um, I don't know if I necessarily have answers for you that will kind of end the debate in your mind or end the conversation for you. There are lots of people way smarter than me that have d been debating some of these questions for hundreds of years before I was born. And so I don't claim to have a way to end that tonight. Um, but I have, I think, been thoughtful about a lot of these things, and I'm hoping that uh, how we talk about it can help you engage in a way that's healthier, maybe opens up new thoughts and new perspectives that you uh, haven't been used to. Yeah, and then we have an, a guest. Yeah, so yeah. my name is Dr. Joel Mayward, and I'm a professor at George Fox University. I'm an assistant professor of Christian Ministries, Theology, and the Arts, and I've been there since fall of 2021. And my family and I, we've been attending Red Hills since this last summer, I guess, so like nine months. My son Copeland is a seventh grader in the youth ministry, and uh, I have two other kiddos. Uh, Eloise and Alistair and my wife Katie. They're not here tonight uh, because they're off doing their own. They have another event that they're at. Uh, but I'm excited to be here and be able to uh, explore the different questions that you have to be able to, hopefully, I mean, I am a theologian, I guess. Uh, Indeed still, you are. I'm, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, so my background is I was a youth and young adults pastor for about a dozen years uh, in Portland and in Arizona and then British Columbia and then back in Portland again. Then my family and I, we moved to Scotland for four years, uh, where I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, and then George Fox, so I went to Fox for my uh, seminary degree, and then they let me come back and be a professor there. Uh, so I've been here, uh, yeah, for about a year and a half now, and just excited to be here, actually. Just love that a night like this exists, just to be able to have conversation, to have dialogue, to be able to try to seek the Lord um, through the questions. I think questions that it's a form of prayer. Like, we're just praying tonight mm -hmm. together um, and trying to understand who this God is that we worship and, and who speaks to us, and we're speaking back, our, voicing our questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas. So, yeah, That's so good. excited to be here. Yeah, thank you, Joel. Well, we have um, just, yeah, another thing. If, if you, as you go to these QR codes, um, and you submit a question, please just do one at a time. That way I can kind of easily access it. And then if you have another one, just resubmit a new, uh, new code. Um, and then, but yeah, but we have, we have a few questions. We're gonna try to keep them for like five minutes and less. So if there's a question pressing, uh, or if there was a question that you submitted and it was pressing, uh, we have a series that we're gonna be doing after this that will be for longer, um, longer questions so we have more time to ask them. But yeah, we have first question. How do we know God is real? And that's a very big and ambiguous one, but we yeah. gave it to Joel the theologian. So James answer. gave it to me. I get the first <laughs> question. How do we know that God is real? Which, you know, not a small question. Um, so I'm going to try to get into some, just the nuances of what, how this question is even worded. How do we know anything how do you know anything and trust anything around you? How do you know that your car is going to be out there after you get out of here? Like, <laughs> right? You're, 
you assume that, oh, I know my car, I know where I left it, I know where it's at, but there's some things that we are just kind of trusting all the time. Uh, we trust other people, we trust the knowledge that we find on the internet or lack of knowledge that we find on the internet. And it's a question of trust. And so knowledge and trust seem to be connected with one another. And so to give a really short philosophy history lesson, there's this thing that happened called the Enlightenment about three, four hundred-ish years ago where human beings decided, like, I think, therefore, I am. You heard that phrase before? I think, therefore, I am. Like, human reasoning is the thing that is the main source of knowledge and insight. That if I can think about it and I can reason about it, then I can come to some sort of definitive proof and conclusion. And that led to a lot of things, like the scientific revolution, like industry, like all sorts of good stuff. Um, all sorts of other stuff that wasn't so good, too. And later on, later in the 20th century, a bunch of people were like, well, I'm going to shift to the other side. I'm not sure that we can know anything at all. And they shifted more to the side of kind of like a skepticism, a radical skepticism, actually, of like, well, it's all just your opinions. I have my opinions, you have your opinions, and we just kind of have a conflict of opinions. So on the one side, this kind of radical optimism about human knowledge, that I can know anything and everything, as long as I work hard enough, reason hard enough, if I get enough evidence and proofs, right, then I can figure these things out. And then the flip side was this radical skepticism, which was just like, it is just opinions, whatever I find on the internet, whatever I choose to like, that's really what's true. As Christians, as people who are trying to understand this God that seems to exist, I think we have to find a somewhere that's not so far on both of those extremes. That the God of the universe, who is real, if we can't just get to that God just through our own knowledge and intellect, in the sense that this God is way bigger than what my brain can accomplish. But on the flip side, if this God is real, and this God has chosen to reveal God's self in our world through, through this, through God's word, ultimately through the person, Jesus Christ, then it's not just a bunch of random opinions that I have to base things off of, but actually this revealed God who shows up in our world and says, I love you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to rise from the dead for you. I'm going to offer you eternal life and relationship with me. I want you to be with me. So if there is a God who is like that, and this God chooses to reveal himself through his word and through his son, and these things seem to be trustworthy enough that it's not so far to the side of, I absolutely know, but also not so far to the side of, I can't know anything at all. And maybe that middle ground, a word we might use would be faith. It's something that we're putting our faith in, our hope in, our trust in, that this God has revealed himself through his Son. Uh, and so if we put our faith and trust in him, he is faithful and just and reveals himself to us and walks alongside us in our everyday lives. So that's a very short, <laughs> condensed answer, I hope, um, but hopefully not too philosophical. No, that was great. I think that was very good. <laughs> I don't think I could answer that in five minutes, so that's why I gave it to you. Yeah, um, you Lane, do you have anything you want to add to that, or do you think that was... Suffice. No, I would have said it just like that. So, uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's really great. I, um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to add anything to it because that's a really, that's a really good way to kind of couch that whole conversation, um, bringing up Rene Descartes and kind of the, the movement of, of reason. 
um, yeah, it's hard to know what we can know. And that's why life is not really about what you can know. It's about where you put your trust, about where you put your faith. And that's, that's more important, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, well said. So the second question that we have is, has God conquered sin and the devil? If not, why hasn't he done so? Um, I gave myself this question because I thought maybe I could answer it. Um, but the simple answer from a Christian perspective, if you just look at Scripture and what that has to, has to say, then I would say, yes, he has conquered sin uh, and the devil, and he's won at the end of the day. But I don't want to just answer it simple, yes, go read your Bibles. Uh, but rather, like, if someone's asking this from the perspective of, like, I'm not a Christian. I see all this evil in the world. How do I reconcile that? Um, I would say there's a lot more to just that. Um, we do see sin. We do see evil. Even if you don't give it the name of sin, uh, we see something is tormenting all the things that uh, we go through. Uh, we see uh, natural disasters occur. We see um, immoral actions happen and just injustice. Um, so what is that? If the Christian God does exist, which I would, going off Joel's point, yes, he does exist. We know that he's real then what is he doing about this? Well, first and foremost, if that God, almighty God exists, he has to be sovereign. He has to be providential over all. Because um, if he's not, then he's not almighty, and there has to be something that's even greater than he is. But if he is real, then we know that he's sovereign, and he's just over all these things. Um, we also know um, that God has created all things. Um, therefore, we look at Scripture, and we see that God created Lucifer, who then became Satan. Um, and so that means that God is over Satan. Although he gives him dominion or rule um, over the world, he still has a plan uh, first and foremost to destroy him. Um, which you kind of could be like, okay, so like, why hasn't he done that yet? Um, I don't have, and I think like Lane was saying, like we don't have the answers to that. And I don't try to act as if like, yes, I know why exactly he hasn't destroyed Satan quite yet, but he's going to do so in like, 50 years from now. No, I don't have that answer. But I would infer that it was so that God could allow his glory to be more beautiful and beautiful every single day. And you might be confused, well, so if, how, does equal e how does evil equal more beauty in his glory? Well, I think as we see goodness being disruptive, as we see goodness being constantly distorted, um, we know that that's not the ultimate goodness. We know that evil has to be the distortion of good, therefore meaning something has to be the source of that good, um, which then would probably mean that, or we hope, and I think that that means that God is going to one day come and rule again. And if we look at scripture, um, the Christian God um, is going to send his son, Jesus, to save all of us, and he's going to send him one day. Um, in, Re in Revelation 19, that's exactly what that talks about, of God coming um, as the beloved lamb, um, and how beautiful that picture is, that although he's allowed evil to exist, he's going to come one day, um, and we can put our trust in him, and, um, and then in Revelation 20, it's very clear that he's going to be destroyed, and that God is going to rule over all of this. Um, I would say that through the cross and the resurrection, we've, see, we've seen that evil um, thought it won, but it didn't, and we see that evil or sin was conquered on the cross. So we have that reconciliation right now for this eternal hope that one day, once and for all, evil will not exist and it will only be goodness. So do you guys have anything you want to Yeah, I would that? just reiterate yeah. the power of the cross and the resurrection. Yeah. Like that evil, has God 
conquered sin and the devil? The short answer is yes. Like the, the battle's already won. Like death has already been defeated. Jesus has already conquered through um, the power of the cross and the resurrection. And so we're just kind of living in um, the aftermath of that, awaiting this time when God will fully restore all things in new creation. Um, but we have hope in that, I think. I think that's a, a helpful posture to be able to have, that God didn't just not do anything, but that God already has intervened um, through Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. Yeah, that's beautiful and good. I think, too, um, what we're wrestling with is an age-old philosophical problem uh, called the problem of evil, right? This is a huge topic. Uh, a few resources off the top of my head that might be helpful for you if you want to continue in dialogue with God about this. Um, and actually one that might cover the last question a little bit too is um, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Um, that's a kind of an apologetic approach to why believing in God is a, is a reasonable thing um, and also deals with the ethic of if, if God is good, then how can evil still exist? Um, if you want to go a little more academic, if you feel like you can hang, uh, I couldn't. I had to read it like three or four times. Um, but Evil and the Justice of God by N.T. Wright is a really good one that deals with that question. And then... Uh, a guy named Randy Alcorn wrote a book called um, If God is Good, that I think he does a pretty good job wrestling with that question, too. So, um, and there's probably a C.S. Lewis book out there that does a good job with that, but I can't think of one right now. I'm sure there is one, though. <laughs> the Problem of Pain. Of ah, yeah. yes. That's a great one. Yeah. yeah. And then A Grief Observed mm -hmm. is kind of a, um, a personal sequel to that book, which is really great. Actually, you should probably start there. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your uh, resources. I think that's very important to continue because, like, like we said, like five minutes isn't. It doesn't feel like it's enough, and I don't think it's enough to try to dive into this. But I think it's good to get a few bullet points and have these things off the top of our heads that we can turn to. But I think more research is always needed and good. Uh, but that kind of leads to the next question that Lane's going to answer: Why is it so hard to hear God's voice? Yeah, I think um, I, I can feel the pain behind this one, right? Because I think we've all been in moments where we're really, we really struggle. And like we, we feel desperate and we're like, I, God, I really just need to hear you right now. I really need to feel you. I need something. Give me something because I'm, I'm, I'm barely hanging on here. Um, and I want to be sensitive to that. I don't want to just say like, well, you're not listening. That's why you can't hear him, right? I think we all go through moments of, I, th I think that our relationship with God too can be kind of like um, any relationship. If you think about like a marriage, right? Marriage begins with a lot of, uh, at least up for us in the West in the modern era, <laughs> it begins with a lot of romance, uh, courtship. It begins with kind of the butterflies and the, the warm fuzzies. But as you make that covenant, as you grow in covenant, your, your, your communication becomes different, Right? Um, the same thing is true like in a, a parent and, and, and child relationship where as, uh, as you know, you, you kids grow, your parents are going to give you more and more responsibility, more and more uh, ability to make your own decisions. And the hope is that you've gotten to a point to where those decisions now they've been informed by all the wisdom that your parents have poured into you for years and years and years. And they can trust you to make certain decisions. And they're going to give you those, those things one, one bit at a time. And I think God can be like that too, where we're wondering like, how come I'm not feeling the warm fuzzy? How come I'm not feeling like the thing that I felt when I really needed to hear God before and he gave it to me? How come I don't feel that now? And I think it's because um, sometimes he, he, he allows us to live in that space to show us what our trust really means, what our faith really means. Like how, how much do you really trust me? 
I, I imagine that Abraham felt similar um, when he was uh, asked to sacrifice his son, right? And he's waiting for God to, like, tell him a reason, like, why is this happening? What are we doing here? Um, and I think he needed to, Abraham needed to know just how far his faith was willing to go for God. Um, but, so that being said, uh, why is it so hard to hear God's voice? Um, I think part of it is we don't know what his voice sounds like. And so we, we don't know how to pick it out. Because it's not as if there's just like one voice in our head all the time, right? There are lots of competing voices all the time. There's the voice of our culture. There's the voice of your peers. Uh, there's the voice of your siblings, your parents, your mentors, your coaches, um, uh, your favorite uh, character in a novel, your... Um, uh, you could go on and on. There are so many things that influence us that when we make decisions, when we um, have questions, we think, what would so-and-so say? What would so-and-so do? What is so-and-so ex- expecting of me that I might not want to do? Like, we hear all these, we hear this council of voices in our head, and the struggle is to, in a Christian's life, I think, make God's the loudest voice in that council. And that's really difficult, and I think the way to do that is to know what his voice sounds like. You think about, like, you know, the Hebrew tradition of, of growing up. You had to memorize the Pentateuch by the time you were 12. By the time you were 12 years old, you could recite Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy by heart. You knew the word of God. You wrote it on your heart. And I think that um, that can't be overstated. Knowing who God is and learning his character allows you to know when he's speaking and when he's not. Um, and when someone else is speaking something else that's contrary to what God wants for you. So I think that's part of it. Um, and then I think, too, just creating the space. Sometimes I feel frustrated that God won't speak to me, and I ask myself, oh, how much have I actually been praying? <laughs> how, how, how much have I actually been quieting the noise in order to lean into the voice of God? And then have I been consistent with it? Like, sometimes we expect, like, okay, I have a question for God, and I want him to answer it when I make five, and I carve out five minutes in the morning to, for him to answer that question, and it doesn't happen. Oh, I'm frustrated he won't answer me. But how persistent are we? <laughs> And continuing to ask. Because if we continue to ask, we might start to notice that throughout our day, throughout our lives, he's answering that question slowly, little by little, giving us situations and opportunities to kind of engage with that question. Um, so I would say knowing the scriptures and knowing God's heart is really important for hearing God's voice. And then also like checking your motivations. Like why do you want to hear God's voice? Because if I want to hear God's voice because I just have... Um, uh, uh, I, w- I want to leverage his opinion to like reinforce my agenda. Like, oh, I really want to go to this one school. So I'm going to pray that God gives me the word to go to that school. Like, is that the only re- reason that I'm praying? Or like, do I really, I really want to date that person. So God, give me the green light. Can I date that person? And if, and if you're only picking up the phone <laughs> when you want something, I think that breaks God's heart a little bit. I think he'll help you out anyway because he's gracious like that. But I also think that the whole point of prayer is not prayer. The whole point of prayer is to get close to God. And so I think that um, checking our own motivations when it comes to why we pray and how we pray, that's important too. So, Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I asked them before. Uh, I just said, you know, let's make sure, and I, I trusted that they were both going to do this anyways, but like, let's make sure as we answer these questions, let's not just answer the question, but let's answer the person behind the question. Because, um, yeah, it's great. Well, for the most part, all day, every day. But like, I think at the same time, just also seeing who asked that and why might they want to be knowing that right now. Because um, yeah, giving a step one, two, and three is great. But like, if it doesn't at all apply, or if I if I need more than just that, it, yeah. 
Um, let's go to the next question. How can you take the Bible literally? Uh, so I get this one. Yeah. And so I teach a course on the Bible at Fox uh, where we just take students through the whole, the whole Bible. That's their textbook. This is the textbook that they all get. Um, and so we, we just read it together and try and understand it. And so I want to answer this question, how do you take the Bible literally? I would, I would actually encourage you to take the Bible literarily to be able to understand the context, genre, the different kinds of things that are going on in the Bible when it comes to reading a text. Um, the Bible is a book, but it's also multiple books. It's actually more, it's better to think of it like a library. Uh, and if you go into a library, there's all different kinds of genres, right? There's poetry, and there's cookbooks, and there's history books, and there's law books, and that's pretty much all in here too. Maybe not cookbooks, though there are some, a lot of stuff about food. Um, <laughs> stories, biographies, all those types of things, and you have to understand the different genre that you're reading uh, to be able to actually understand what's going on, what is God doing in this particular text. So the question, is it perfect? Uh, is a huge one, because uh, it, and I don't know, like the theologian and philosopher in me is like, what do you mean by perfect? What you, I'm trying to understand that one. Yeah, define perfect first, <laughs> and then I'll be able to answer that. Um, all scripture is God-breathed, right? Second Timothy 3, 16 talks about this. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for encouraging, etc. So if this is coming from God, and God is perfect, uh, in the sense of God being sinless, eternal, good, loving, gracious, etc., um, then yeah, in this is a text that reflects its author, yes. But it also reflects its human authors, and it's kind of a text that's, it's a both-and thing, that God is not just, God didn't drop this text out of the middle of nowhere, and we all picked it up, uh, but God's speaking in and through these human beings who weren't perfect, who didn't get things right, who still had sin in their lives, and yet through the Holy Spirit was able to inspire and work through them so that we still get the voice of God, that we can, like what Lane is saying, like we can get the voice of God through this text and understand the truth of the love that God wants to express for us in and through this, even though it's also written by imperfect human beings. So is it perfect? It is in, a, in that it communicates the heart of God and the heart of God is perfect. But on the other side, it's also a, a very human text and reflects the flaws of the humans that are trying to grasp and understand this perfect God. Is it trustworthy? I think is another question behind this, right? It, is it trustworthy? And the short answer is yes. Um, and I know that I'm just like some academic that's up here saying that, and I could go on and on about like why that is. Um, but in terms of ancient texts, just on like a non-religious sense, like this is one of the most trustworthy texts that we have from the ancient world. Uh, in terms of the amount of manuscripts we have, in terms of the amount of people who've actually looked into this thing and studied it, in terms of the amount uh, of people who've chosen to bank their entire lives upon it, uh, it's inarguably the most significant, most popular, most influential text in all of human history. And that's something that um, I think whether you're Christian or not, like we have to wrestle with that. A whole lot of people have banked their life on this uh, and seem to think that it's true, and not just true in the sense of like it gives good advice, but reveals the good God that is speaking in and through it. Yeah. And if that's the case, uh, then we should pay attention to that and try and understand why that might be the case and maybe take this thing 
really, really seriously uh, as a text, as this revelation from God to us. So how do you take the Bible literally? Um, you take it literarily. You try and understand the text as it is as a text and understand its different genres. But ultimately, this is a means to an end. It's a means to the God who is the author of that text. It's God's message to us. And so ultimately, it's, it's leading us, hopefully, if we're approaching it correctly, towards the God that loves us and wants to uh, reveal himself to us. There you go. That's my short answer, as much as it can be short. So. That's good. Yeah, uh, that was a great answer. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> that was that. I'm actually, yeah taking so many classes and stuff like on this it's like it's hard to put that in like five minutes and you did such a great job articulating that whose idea was this anyway i don't know (laughs) (laughs) um lane i gave you a really hard question in fact you pulled me aside and asked me why did you give me this question um he's like so and i and so the question is are we predestined and chosen by god uh why are some people chosen and others aren't i'll let you answer that I'll just sit here and laughing. Yeah, so he gave me predestination. I was like, James. <laughs> so there's a, there's a long theological debate about predestination and free will, right? And basically, the, the, the concept floats around God's sovereignty and human agency. Like, wh- what wins out? What has more influence? What has more power? Whatever. I, it, it's fascinating to me because it's, kind of it's kind of a modern question. In the same way that, like, you look at the Bible literarily— and we come to it with like a post-enlightenment scientific uh, age of reason way of thinking about the world. If you go to Genesis as a scientific textbook, you're not going to get the answers that you want because the writers of Genesis were not thinking about uh, answering our scientific questions. They were talking about the theology of creation. Um, and those are, it's a very different way to talk about that. In the same way, um, I don't know if the first century Christians would be asking about this in the way that we're asking about it. Um, does God choose us or do we choose God? Yes. The answer is yes. And at the end of the day, I think they, the question behind this question is, does God want me? Does God want everyone? And what can I do to mess that up? I think that's the heart behind these questions. If you get past the intellectual debate, um, there are proof texts in the scriptures that use the word predestination, depending on the translation that you pick. Uh, it's about eight times that you see this word specifically used in the New Testament. Um, when we see Paul mostly writing this word in the letters to the church, I don't think those Christians were asking the same questions that we're asking about what we call soteriology or salvation. I don't think they were asking, like, how do I know intellectually that I have made it in? Um, I think what Paul was trying to do is encourage them to persevere. <laughs> it's going to get hard. People are going to come against you. God has chosen you for this purpose, even if it ends in your death and your torture. He's chosen you. He's with you, and it's going to be okay. He works everything together for your good. I think that's what he was trying to do. And I think if you—it's it's easy to kind of get in these little, like, myopic— sections of scripture and try to answer like really difficult questions and that's where I think we need to zoom out and look at the whole Bible what story is it telling from beginning to end and if we look at this question do we choose God or does God choose us God's posture towards human beings is always like this a hand open extended towards us waiting for us 
waiting for that moment where we choose him. And even when we slap his hand away, he puts it back. His faithfulness is always extended towards us. And the, the theme of choices is really strong throughout the Bible, where you're faced with these choices. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. You have Cain and Abel. You have Noah and the people. And it continues on. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to run to God, the giver of life? Or are you going to choose to run away from God and, and create death for yourself? That's the narrative of the whole Bible. And so um, I will say that Foursquare specifically has a doctrine of free will. Um, they would say that human beings have the ability to choose whether or not they want to be in the embrace of God or to walk away from that. That's what Foursquare believes. Um, I, on the surface, I think that I'm, I, I think I agree with that. Like we have the ability to choose God. Um, I also believe that God is really sovereign and that uh, he knows a lot of what we don't know. And so the question is complicated, but I, I think that the, the application is very simple. God wants to be with you and you never run out of opportunities to reach out and, and grab his hand that he's extending towards you. Um, so that'd be the way that I'd answer that pastorally, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I would agree with that. I think also like I, to emphasize, like, I think a lot of times we read that word predestined and like it carries a lot of what we've put into that meaning of the word and what a, a lot of theologians have put into that meaning of the word uh, versus what I think the original intent was to just be an encouragement. Like you were chosen by God, therefore don't question your salvation because you know that he chose you. Um, yeah, and there's a lot more that goes into heaven, hell, and everything in between. But yeah, let's go to the next question. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? I think, um, for starters, we see, like, Jesus talks about himself being the only way, the truth, and the life in John 14, um, 5 through 6. That's where I think a lot of times we get this, like, why is he the only way? Typically, I've heard my non-Christian friends ask that to me. Like, why is he the only way, James? That seems really limiting, as if, like, God's an unloving God that he only allowed one specific way to get to him, and everyone else is, like, um, just sent to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. Um, that's what, what I've heard a lot, like, being the heart posture behind this question. Um, but I think, like, I don't think it's limiting. I really don't. Um, I think it's actually very loving. Because if we think about it, there's this mountain uh, metaphor that people like to kind of illustrate. It's like, how do you get to the top of a mountain and God's at the top of the mountain? And, like, one mountain that I've heard of is kind of like the works-based way of getting up there. Like, if I, can my, if my, I myself can be a good enough person, then I'll get to the top of the mountain. I'll be in heaven one day. I'll be with God. Um, the other, the next one is like kind of the religions-based one, and that's like uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, just anything that like has like multiple gods, and if you believe in one of them, like you're going to end up in heaven. The uh, third mountain would be like the one-way religions, which is Judaism, uh, Islam, and then also Christianity falls into that as well. Um, and that one is you only believe in one God, and that God is like your source of salvation. Um, and for us, we believe that Jesus is the only way. Um, I think logically speaking, um, if we only look at logic, like if Jesus said he's the only way, then any other way outside of that is either wrong or Jesus is wrong and there's some other way outside of that. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of talks about this in Mere Christianity, where he kind of refers to Jesus as either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Either he was telling the truth, and he's God Almighty, because he references himself to be God Almighty plenty of times in the Gospels, 
Um, or he lied about it and he just, yeah, he was trying to pull a fast one over a bunch of people. Or he totally believed it, but he was a complete lunatic and was like actually out of his mind. Uh, we would hold to that he's Lord and what he said is true, which then makes his claim in John 14 also true, that if he says he's the only way, that means he's the only way. But I think if we look at all the other ways of salvation outside of Christianity, Yeah, and I think sometimes that we you can get into the weeds like, well, what about, you know, Native Americans who never saw or met Jesus, had an opportunity to meet Jesus? What about people from Asia and like Africa? And like if if they all died never knowing Jesus, then how do we how do we solve that problem? And I think, again, this is where like our modern sensibilities are reading into the Bible rather than the Bible reading into us. The character of Jesus, right? If you look at uh, was it Second Peter 3, um, that Jesus's desire is that none of us would perish. Is that that passage? Um, I think that that's God's heart, is that he wants to extend a hand of compassion and mercy and forgiveness towards anyone that would receive it. And so um, I don't think that we have to worry about the, uh, the fate of someone's eternal, the, the status of someone's eternal fate based on a technicality. I don't think that's what the Bible is trying to teach us. Um, the fact is, if you've been introduced to Jesus and, and you come to know him, we understand that he is love and he is life. And after knowing him, there's no other way I can go. There's, there's n the disciples, right, after Jesus said some weird stuff about eating his body and his blood, everyone was like, I'm out. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but peace. But his disciples, who had come to know him, Jesus asked them, so are you guys going to leave me too? And they go, where else are we going to go? <laughs> you alone hold the words to eternal life. And so I think that's the, that's the idea, is that once you've encountered the love of Jesus, you know he's the way. He's the way to what God intended for life and creation. So that's what I, how I'd respond to that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Joel? Um, I, not a ton more. I think I'd, I just would reiterate and reemphasize um, God's deep, deep, deep love for his creation. Like right from the get-go, God creates, God declares it very good, God is intimately involved and related in God's creation. Um, and human beings is like kind of this, uh, wants to be with us, wants us to be with him. Uh, and so Jesus claiming I am the way and the truth and the life is not, uh, again, this some sort of like exclusive-ist, uh, like, well, just only the people that I like or something like that, because he just likes everyone like he he's, he loves everyone he wants everyone to be with him he has this heart of receptivity and grace and wanting people to be with him even though he's also there's an exclusivity there in that it's through him 
that people have access to God. Uh, and so I think just recognizing that, that the posture of God towards humanity uh, is one of love and grace, like what you said, Lane, like an extended hand, really like a, an embrace, like I just want to be with you, I want you to be with me. Um, and so that posture of love is something to keep in mind uh, whenever we ask these t- any of these tough questions, right? Um, that God loves us, period. I mean, that sounds so simple, but it's the most profound truth that we could ever hold on to. Who was it? Was it Spurgeon or was it Piper? That, that it was like this famous interview. I can't remember which theologian it was now. Now I sound silly. But they, they, they were interviewing him and they asked him, so they're looking at his huge library of books in his office, right? And they asked him, so like based on all your, yeah, who was it? Spurgeon. I know it was Spurgeon, yeah. Yep. Based on all this wisdom and knowledge and everything that you've accumulated, you know, what, what has all of this taught you? And he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Spurgeon was one of the most dynamic, respected um, theologians and preachers of his day. And so it, it was really humbling for someone who had such expertise and acumen in the scriptures to boil it down to the simple truth that Jesus loves you. It's powerful. It's powerful. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, we'll go to the next question, which is, how is Jesus both God and man? Okay, that's Joel. me. Yeah. So how is Jesus both God and man? Something to keep in mind is, first, he is, like both 100% God, 100% human. Um, and that any time that we lean too far to one side or the other throughout Christian history, that's the thing that's led people astray. You have to hold on to the tension of 100% human, 100% God, not 50-50, not like he's God, but he kind of like inhabited this body and he just put on this human suit and ran around in it. Uh, (laughs) Not some sort of like co-mingle. I know it is, right? But this is... Um, yeah, there's various heresies from like the early third, fourth centuries that this I'm describing. Uh, the idea that like they mix together, there's like a God-human mix and they just kind of got in a blender and put them all together. It's like this, Jesus is 100% human, 100% God, um, which means a number of different things. Um, number one, it's a mystery. So I don't have a good answer beyond the, the mystery and the paradox and the tension, right? Uh, that's just true. Uh, and every time we try to solve that mystery, we end up in a heresy. That seems to be the thing that Christians have done throughout the years is like, when I solve the mystery, um, then it leads more to like, I put God in a box rather than respond in awe and worship towards the true God. Um, it also means if Jesus is fully human and fully God, um, number one, that we can know the actual, we can know who God is by looking to Jesus. So when I read scripture, when I look at the Gospels and I see the character and posture of Jesus as a human being and how he acts in response to other people, I am seeing the very heart of God revealed intimately and up close as a human being. also have to remember he's a human being in a very particular way. There is no abstract Jesus, meaning that he was a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, who, you know, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, born to Mary, raised by Joseph as his, like, basically adopted dad, uh, had these friends he walked around with for three years as he did ministry. Um, There is no sort of like abstraction of Jesus, but we have to remember the particularity of who he is as a human being, Uh, that he's a man. He grew up. He uh, was a kid in the temple who like seemed to get lost or 
I wouldn't say disobeyed his parents, uh, but at least they were freaking, yeah, yeah, freaking them out. Um, and if you're a parent of a middle schooler like I am, you've been there, uh, going like, what are you doing? What were you thinking? And he was just like, I'm just hanging out with God. I don't know, um, which is pretty great. Like, he's, he's a God that is not far from us, but through Jesus shows how much he loves us, that he wants to be with us and be us, like be a human being. Uh, and that we can look to Jesus not only to understand who God is, but we can also look to Jesus to understand what it means to be a human, how to be the, the human that God has created and designed us to be, that we can look to what, like the answer of what is a human being is answered in Jesus as well. Uh, and so that allows us to be able to have an actual tangible picture of like, um, the big term here is anthropology, like the study of what it means to be a human, Christian anthropology, the answer to that question is just Jesus. And we look to who he is to try to understand what it means to be human in this world. So, there you go. We're going to answer one more prepared question. Um, and then we're going to jump into some live Q&A. So, if you have any Q&A that you really, really want to be asked, um, submit those and in the next like few minutes. While Lane answers, why hasn't Jesus come back already i don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like what more do you want i i think that um the fact that jesus himself said look i don't know when i'm coming back so don't worry about it do what i've told you to do i think it's it's funny because there is a part of our culture right now when i say our culture i mean christian culture that is really obsessed with looking into the crystal ball and trying to figure out okay, what are the signs? What's happening? And they look to Revelation to kind of as like a decoder, like, okay, what church does this represent and who is this and whatever. Um, and I think that's when we're, we're forgetting the literary side of what the Bible is. Apocalyptic literature is, is not, I don't think, meant to be a crystal ball. Um, it's meant to be revelatory and, and, and prophetic, meaning um, uh, speak truth to a current situation and about, and about, about truth as a whole. Um, and so I don't think it's bad to study Revelation in that way, if that's, if that's your thing. Um, there are theologians who are far more educated and smarter than me that would tend to look at Revelation that way. Um, there are also theologians and biblical scholars that tend to, in my opinion, take a more orthodox approach to thinking about Revelation that I tend to lean towards. Um, you know, when you start th- looking at the passages about like locusts coming in, you're like, oh yeah, that's a black ops helicopter because if John were to see that, he wouldn't know how to interpret it. So we'd see helicopter blades. And that's, a, I-, I think that's where we start getting in trouble. If you think about like wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, those have never stopped. Like those have always been happening. And if you think about like the first century, like world around Christianity, wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, I mean, uh, how many times do people must have thought the world was coming to an end, right? The Black Plague. Like, what was it, a third of, of, of Europe was killed off by a disease? That feels pretty apocalyptic. World War I, they called it the war to end all wars. That was what they called it, right? Spanish flu hit around that time, right? And then World War II hits, and now we have weapons of mass destruction that can literally destroy all of humanity with a, one airplane, right? So, like, maybe not one airplane, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's, it, it's mass destruction, and then the world didn't end. And so I think for us, it's really easy to kind of, it's understandable to want to, like, figure it out. What is the time? What is the place, right? There was a guy who wrote, like, it was called uh, 1,989 Reasons Why God is Coming Back in 1989. 
He wrote that book, right? God obviously didn't come back in 1989, so he wrote another book, 2001 Reasons Why God is Coming Back in 2001, and then he revised it again in 2006. <laughs> so like, the, there's, there's a temptation to want to do that because I think it makes us feel like we're in control. It makes us feel like we're safe. The fact is, guys, no matter what happens to us tomorrow or today or 10 years from now or 100 years from now, the mission of the church does not change. It does not change. Be salt, be light, proclaim my name, baptize people, and love me. That's, that's what Jesus gave us to do, and that's what we're going to do. Whether or not the United States remains a, a free country for the next 200 years, or whether or not a total, totalitarian regime takes over and we lose all of our liberties next year. I hope that doesn't happen, but if it did, guess what? The mission of the church does not change. We are to continue to be salt and light. And so from this humble man's opinion, I know I'm shouting at you right now for no reason. You're like, I didn't ask it. Um, from this humble man's opinion, um, don't, don't stress out too much about the signs and trying to figure out exactly when things are going to happen. Just be faithful to what Jesus has called you to do. And if you're faithfully pursuing Jesus, you're safe in his will. That's my opinion. So there's a theologian, a guy named N.T. Wright, that uh, Lane talked about earlier, that talks about Scripture being this kind of a long story, trying to understand the Bible as being various acts of a story, and paints a picture of, like, the, the fifth act is the act of the church. Like, if we were in a play or in a story, this would be kind of the chapter of the church. And then the sixth act is this new creation, when Jesus comes back, shows up. So in the story, we actually know the ending of the story already. Like, we know the story ends and it's good. Like, God saves the day. God saves the world. God resurrects all things in new creation through Christ and his power. And in the meantime, like, we are kind of in the story with the guidebook. Like, we have a bit of a script here uh, for the play that we're trying to enact. And we live out the present day knowing that the future is secure. Like, we know that the end of the story is good. We don't know the when, though exactly how it's going to play out and what time and all that stuff, but we still know that it's good in the end. Right. And that gives us genuine hope, yeah. not just like some sort of empty optimism or like trying to like muster up, oh, things will be okay. Like Christians can genuinely say it will all be okay mm. because Jesus made it okay. Like we know the end of the story and it's all good. Um, so no matter how yeah, scary or bad it gets, on a global scale or on a personal scale, like the, my own tragedies and my own frustrations and wondering, like, when will Jesus come back into my situation that I can still say it's going to be okay because the God of the universe has promised it and the end of the story is good. It's good. Yeah. I completely agree. And although you did shout a little bit, Lane, That's I think... <laughs> you guys didn't even ask the question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, like, yelling think, at you. <laughs> I think salt and light and, like... Yeah, because, I mean, I do have, like, 2023 reasons why, like, he's coming back this year. But, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, I think being light in the world is what matters. And if, yeah, if he does come back tomorrow, are we going to be like, oh, man, like, I didn't get married. Or, oh, man, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Or are we going to, like, hold on, like, okay, that doesn't matter. I just need to put my head down and follow Christ wholeheartedly. That was my one condition in my prayer life to God. Right. I was like, you can come back. That's fine. Just let me get married first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. We'll yeah. um, cover so, that in youth group next week. Yeah, right. Um, if you guys, I have your permission. Could we go like five minutes over like 730? Is that cool? Cool. Um, we have a couple questions here. They just said no and started throwing yeah, things at you. Um, sorry. I guess, yeah, you don't care enough. I don't Boo. know. Um, <laughs> We have, uh, first question is, how am I supposed to read 
the fairy tales in the Bible? It's a common atheist question. That's what they preface, prefaced is, this is a common atheist question. How am I supposed to read the fairy tales, quote unquote, in the Bible? So my initial reaction is, I don't know of any fairy tales in the Bible, so I'm trying to... Um, I think one common one I've heard is like Noah and the Ark. Like that sounds like okay. a fairy tale. Or me. Jonah, like or the book Jonah. of Jonah, right? Yeah. So it seems a bit larger than life or something that couldn't have happened. Right. Um, there are different ways of approaching that. There are ways of seeing those texts as being, um, again, they are kind of quasi-mythological, whether or not they historically happened in that exact way. Um, again, the, the ancient writers are not thinking about it in scientific terms because they don't have that same kind of mindset. Um, but I guess, so, and I have all sorts of opinions on this, but my, my initial thought whenever I get this type of a question is like, well, this can't happen. And I'm like, well, the resurrection did. Um, and if the resurrection happened, if Jesus can rise from the dead, then anything is possible, period. Like, anything is possible. And so I don't have too big of reservations of... Um, the, the unrealisticness of certain parts of the biblical text. Um, and I also have to recognize, again, genre, culture, context, uh, where people are coming from uh, in an ancient Near Eastern context and why they're writing what they're writing. And that's really helpful. When you get some of that background understanding of not reading it through a 21st century Western American lens, but an ancient Near Eastern context. Um, and this is why it's important just to, like, not just read scripture on your own, but read scripture in community with others and read scripture with people who um, have done their homework. That's not like a pitch for theologians, I guess. Maybe it is, I don't know. Um, biblical scholarship matters. Like knowing these things really do matter uh, to be able to understand how and why the text is written the way that it's written. Yeah. So, Yeah, I think too, going kind of back to like how do we know God is real? I think this question is actually in a similar vein of, of, of conversation. Um, it requires faith to really put your trust in anything, right? And so I, I would I would look to the atheists, um, and an atheist might say, or an agnostic might say that they don't have faith, but they do. They have faith in certain systems and structures, right? So to believe that um, that the universe began through a random collision of molecules uh, in a rapid expanding explosion that is continuing to today, um, which set off a cataclysmic um, chain reaction of, uh, you know... To, to believe that life came about that way, um, that sounds pretty fantastic, right? Like, if you, if you say that out loud, you're like, how do I know that that's real? How do I know that that's true? Um, that that's, we all put our faith and our trust in something. And so if we're going to say that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and there's a lot of uh, evidence to show the historicity and the integrity of that claim— um, and it would be very unlikely, actually, that we would have what we have if he didn't come back from the dead. Um, and there's lots of literary criticism that can lend itself to that argument. Um, but if we're going to believe that, like Joel said, why can't we believe that anything else happened? Because the conquering of death is literally the ultimate reversal of natural law, right? And so I think that, yeah, nothing's off the table. Um, yeah. 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 And so those are great. And I was actually, I was going to touch on that a little bit. But like, yeah, resurrection, if that happens then, I mean, Jesus pointed to, or talks about Jonah in the whale. So, like, if he talks about it, and he's God Almighty who gave his words to us, and he's resurrected from the dead, I think that just points to everything else being true. But last question, 
Um, and maybe try to, not the whole testimony, like the hour-long version of it, but maybe like two minutes. Why did you choose to give your life to Jesus? So I, I grew up in a Christian home uh, up in Tacoma, Washington, and I gave my life to Christ on December 24th, 1990, when I was six years old at a Christmas Eve service um, because my parents had raised me in the faith and I had read scripture and I came to the, my own conclusions at age six, with all my wisdom, um, <laughs> and that Christmas Eve, because uh, we did communion, and my mom was like, well, you can't have communion because you're not a Christian, and I was like, but I am a Christian, and I got pretty upset, actually, and like tried to explain to her, like, no, Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross. like He rose from the dead. It was actually a very logical argument as a six-year-old, um, and we prayed and all that and like asked Christ into my life, um, believed in him and my Lord and Savior, and I've been trying to follow him ever since. Um, but I do feel like uh, my faith journey has expanded and deepened over the years, um, both being in a pastorate role, like being called into ministry full-time, and then shifting gears into more of this academic thing, um, where I go and like get a PhD and, and that kind of stuff. People wondered if like, well, if you get if you go get, people have asked me this, if you go get a PhD, is that going to make you lose your faith somehow? Um, which I always was like, I'm not, no, it didn't. It, if anything, it made it deeper. Um, it helped me know the God of the universe better um, and know how much I don't know, actually, um, and how much I have to still trust in the Lord. Um, so all that to say, like, God has been faithful for a long time in my life. I mean, before I was even six years old, um, but that's just been a part of my story. Um, is I accepted him when I was six, and I've been trying to follow him ever since. That's beautiful. I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing, Joel. I was seven, so you beat me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I remember uh, for me it was very simple. When I was a kid, I just kind of was, from the earliest age I remember, I, I was like aware of God hmm. or, or something beyond myself. And I remember like I would feel like the wind on my face. And I remember I told my mom, I was like, hey, like God's kissing me. And she looked down at me like, what are you talking about? Like, I just, I just had this awareness that everything that happened happened because God made it so. And I don't really know why I thought that. It was just, it was just very simple for me. I grew up in a Christian home as well. Um, and I remember when I was seven, uh, the kids pastor that was there at the time was, was going into pretty like vivid detail about the cross, which might seem mature, but um, he was talking about how painful it was and Roman torture methods and and I remember being a seven-year-old just like crying my eyes out because I loved Jesus and um, every all the stories that I had learned about Jesus and how like kind he was and how loving he was. And I was just learning about how these people were just being so, in my mind, being so mean to Jesus. Like, why would you be so mean to Jesus? And I remember the, the pastor said, um, and he did all of this because he loves us so much. And I remember at that moment, I was like, well, then I want to love him. I want to love him the way that he's loved me. Uh, and so I, I like told the pastor that I wanted to, to pray and, 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 and commit my life to Jesus. And I got baptized at a young age and that's kind of how it was. A more interesting, not more interesting, cause I actually, I love my story, but maybe a more, um, applicable for some people's, uh, part of the story is, uh, why I chose God again. <laughs> because when I got to be, uh, 17, 18 years old, my church had really fallen apart and split, 
and my pastors had kind of walked away from their faith and their families. And I was just kind of like, what just happened? Um, and I remember I, I had this moment where I was like, okay, I might have been drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit on this, which if you don't know the, the, what that means, I won't explain that. Anyway, I, I may be just believing all of this because someone told me to believe it. Uh, believe in God and do I actually, do I want to do this with my life? And I remember, um, I, I can't really explain this in a rational way, but while I was praying, I just felt something. I just felt the presence of God and I didn't hear it audibly, but what I heard in my heart was, Lane, I didn't hurt you and I never will. And so I was able to look at all the corruption and the unhealth and the like yuck of my church and say, okay, that has nothing to do with God. That had everything to do with human beings, but I love Jesus. And it kind of took me back to that moment, right? It was like, no matter what I believe, I know that that Jesus loves me and he did everything that he did because he loves me. So I'm going to love him. And so I chose to take a leap of faith really. And I, and all my questions about the existence of God didn't just go away at that, at that time. I still wrestle with them. Hey, just so you know, I still wrestle with them if that gives you any permission to have your own doubts. Every once in a while, I'll have that thought. What if all this is not real? <laughs> but guess what? The more that I lean into those questions, I find that when I come back around to them, I have more faith. I have more devotion. I have more love. And I haven't walked away from them yet. And so um, I think that that has been uh, a compelling part of my story that I've had to be honest about with myself. Because if you're not honest about your own questions and your own doubts, you're just going to kind of build on this like story that you're telling everyone and build on this mask that you're wearing and eventually it will crumble. So if you have big questions about whether or not you actually believe any of this, you have to be honest about them because God can handle it. And I think that if you're faithful to, to lean into those questions, um, your faith will grow. It really will. I just want to say thank you to both you and Joel for being willing to help out with this and the start of, I think, hopefully open dialogues in this youth ministry. Um, Because, yeah, like my story, like coming back to Jesus again is kind of like when I got into Bible college, like I was in Bible college, like I had like professors in like one hallway in which I could ask them any question I wanted to, but there's still like always these questions over and over and over again. And, you know, this verse, it's kind of where apologetics, um, kind of centers around a little bit, but it says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Typically, we leave out the last part of do it with gentleness and respect. And I was given, I was always given answers to my questions, but they were always done in like, well, you're dumb for believing in this. You're dumb for, uh, or you're, (laughs) you're dumb for doubting this. You're dumb for this. Like, and, like, you know, we see that a lot. Like, we see the people at the uh, street corners who have, like, the right answer. But they're just yelling at people and probably putting a bad taste in the church in their mouth. Um, and for me, like, I, that just turned me off. That really, really turned me off. But as I searched God um, and really, like, wrestled with the doubts, um, I saw answers. I don't have all of them. I don't have probably fulfilled answers. And I probably never will until I'm on the other side of eternity with him. But, like, experience plus answers, or I guess probably a better term would be responses, 
is a really cool testimony to be able to walk with people through their hard struggles too because you've been there as well um and doing so in gentleness and respect to see where that person's at and saying you know what i don't need to give you x y and z right now i just need to hold you because you're going through a traumatic experience or maybe you do need to hear x y and z because you're asking the question that's kind of all you care about right now um so i guess like going forward that's kind of what I want the DNA of this youth group to be is like inviting people into this conversation, inviting people in to ask questions, inviting people in that may not know Jesus at all, but they see something in your life that is full of life, it's full of hope, it's full of joy. It may suck sometimes and it's okay to embrace that, but ultimately at the end of the day, Jesus has given you new life, um, has given you this amazing testimony that you can go tell them um and hopefully by asking that last question at the end you kind of see into their world a little bit too of like they continue to search day in and day out um yeah so i thank you guys for the humility i thank you guys for coming just wanted to learn more and just be a part of this conversation i hope to continue doing that in this context in youth ministry so yeah Thank you for putting this on, James. We appreciate it. Yeah.